Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 181 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, the Silver King is back. Once again, we are breaking down all things NXT and AEW on a special show, the AEW Dynamite episode that we watched went down last Friday, but because it happened along with the Go Home Smackdown from Hell in a Cell, because we've done a ton of episodes that week, we decided to hold our breakdown of AEW for our old school show that went along with NXT. So we're doing it on a Wednesday, NXT and AEW back together again. AEW looks like it will continue to be on hiatus from that Wednesday time slot for at least one more week, I think. Maybe it's two, Uh, but they are doing a Saturday night show this week, so I'm not yet sure whether we'll do an AEW breakdown this week on Sunday or if we're going to hold it again to a Wednesday show along with NXT. That remains to be seen, but you can certainly keep tuning into the Getting Over Wrestling podcast and following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast to find that out. So, hey, since we're already getting into the business portion of the show, let's continue it. Yes, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We release episode schedules, uh, pre and post show polls for pay-per-views. Every time we do drop a new episode, the very first thing we do is tweet about it. And it's also where you can interact with us live, not just all week talking about professional wrestling, but especially during the four major shows, Raw, NXT, SmackDown, and AEW, not in that order, at least from a critical standpoint. But also while you're following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, don't forget what this show is all about. It's all about Defy. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, for Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts, dropping a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love the show and why they should subscribe and make this their new favorite wrestling podcast. So that is our intro. There's not too much else to say. I want to get into the meat of this show. Not so much big meaty men slapping meat. Big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> but more the meat on meat action that we get here at the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. You're good. You're good. Gen- Please, gently, yeah, yeah. gently. Amen. I'm, I'm delicate. And let's start with NXT since it is the freshest show. Uh, normally I start with the big main event kind of topic and then break down the rest of the card, but I had to change things up a little bit this week based on how NXT as an episode was built. So let's actually begin with where NXT began, the opening segment, opening match, Adam Cole against Carmelo Hayes. Cole opened the show, he went over what happened last week, then refused to pick an opponent as he was scheduled to do because he doesn't follow NXT's rules. Hayes, who by the way fought Kushida two weeks ago, don't forget, came out and said he would change Cole's mind And then he did a takeoff of John Cena's ruthless aggression line, slapping him across the face and creating a match. Cole threw Hayes into the barricade and hockey glass a bunch of times. Hayes countered a vertical suplex into a cutter, which was a really cool move for a near fall. And then he got another near fall after a code breaker. Cole eventually caught Hayes with a super kick and a Panama Sunrise for the one, two, three, winning with his signature move, not his finisher, in what was a very entertaining segment and match that kicked off the first 20 minutes of NXT. 
Later in the show, William Regal told Cole that Samoa Joe was well within his rights to choke him out last week because he was provoked by Cole pushing him. Cole got pissed off and just left the CWC, or at least he said he was leaving the CWC. Uh, Doing the separate singles matches for Cole and Kyle O'Reilly was a smart booking move, and Cole playing the role that Kushida played a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago, I'm sorry, uh, in making Hayes look legitimate was great. Hayes is going to be, it seems, the men's equivalent of Zoe Stark at this point. Someone who has come in in a new performance center class, is impressing right away, and is getting heavily worked into the rotation. So I would, just like with Zoe Stark, expect to see plenty more of Carmelo Hayes on your television in the coming weeks and months. And that, by the way, is a very good thing. So let's skip from the show's opening segment to the main event, which was scheduled Kushida against Kyle O'Reilly in a non-title match, of course, because Kushida is the Cruiserweight champion. So this got the final 20 minutes of the show, just like uh, Cole got the first 20 minutes of the show. It wasn't enough time to really come close to living up to their 2015 Best of Super Juniors match over in New Japan, which, by the way, I tweeted a link to. So if you have not seen that match, you really don't have an excuse. I tweeted a live, free link, English commentary too, where you can watch Kushida and Kyle O'Reilly six years ago. I highly suggest you doing that. As far as this match goes, Kushida hit a double underhook suplex bridge, but O'Reilly got his foot on the rope to break the count. Kushida got another near fall, folding O'Reilly over in a bridge during a heel hook. Kushida then repeated that suplex on the ring apron in a sick spot. O'Reilly and Kushida traded submissions and mat grappling until O'Reilly finally caught Kushida's ankles and wrapped him up, tied him up for the win. This was great, and it was awesome that they had O'Reilly go over clean, even though Kushida is champion on the brand. They could have easily taken the easy way out, basically, but they chose not to. Cole then came in and attacked O'Reilly after the match, and they brawled at ringside until referees finally separated them, I think pushing one or both of them outside the CWC at Samoa Joe's direction. And that left Kyle O'Reilly alone in the ring where he got attacked suddenly by Diamond Mine. Roderick Strong revealed himself with a shaved head. He did all the work laying out Kushida. Tyler Rust was there seemingly as the number two guy. And then Hideki Suzuki, who's another new member of the WWE Performance Center, he was the third man, long career in Japan, but never seemed to stick around that long with one individual organization. WWE, it was believed, brought him in as a trainer. It looks like he's at least going to be a trainer athlete or or something to that end. Uh, Malcolm Bivens then showed up as the leader and he took the cruiserweight title and threw it down onto Kushida to end the show. So we have another faction with four people. Strong is back as the wrestling front and the leader of this new stable with Malcolm Bivens being the mouthpiece and the voice. And we got Malcolm F. Bivens closing an NXT show, which is incredible. I mean, it was the main event segment and he closed the show. It was just incredible and awesome stuff. Strong gets his mouthpiece because he's not a good promo, which is great. They even teased us, Diamond in the Rust, all that stuff that Bivens was saying previously, Diamond Mine, it was all there for us to figure out. Best of all, this was kept 100% quiet with no leaks. Talk about a win upon a win upon a win. This was very well done. It was a great way to introduce a faction and a terrific close to what was a very strong episode of NXT. And my hope is that Diamond Mine grows. And I don't want it to grow NWO style where all of a sudden there's suddenly eight people in there. 
But as individuals are downtrodden, they struggle a little bit. Think of it almost the way that Seth Rollins picked up Austin Theory, right? Where he saw a guy who was struggling and needed a little pick-me-up and he brought him in to his Messiah cult or whatever he was doing. I like the idea of Diamond Mine either finding people from the Performance Center and here and there adding them to their stable or just taking guys in NXT who may need a little bit of a lift and giving them that lift because that's what Rust needed and that's what Roderick Strong needed. So it's really cool to have seen this come together in this way. And obviously this is just the start, so we don't know what the long-term plans are. The one thing I will say is this. I don't know how Diamond Mine can really coexist with Imperium on the same show. They give off very similar vibes all the way down to the black tracksuits. So that's gonna be something that NXT needs to work out because just like my comment with LA Knight and Cameron Grimes, and we're actually gonna talk about them next, you don't really need two millionaire gimmicks on the same show. And you don't really need two factions that are based on respecting the ring and Matt wrestling on the same show. So I don't really know how they're gonna figure that out, but I am interested to see if they do. We'll move on. As I mentioned, LA Knight was at a pool at his mansion bragging about being the million dollar champion and calling Cameron Grimes an idiot and a bunch of other names for caring more about Ted DiBiase than the title itself. Then Knight promised he would take Grimes out the next time they see each other. Grimes arrived at the CWC in a Bentley. I think it was a Bentley. Uh, Maybe it was a Chrysler. I didn't really get a chance to see. Uh, Handing out money to guys and then punching one of them who insulted DiBiase. I actually kind of hate to admit this and I can't necessarily put my finger on it, but something about LA Knight has, I don't want to say won me over, but it's beginning to win me over over the last three weeks. Maybe it's just that he finally has a direction, some motivation, something that we can see visibly that he can brag about where previously he was bragging and you're like, Why is this guy so full of himself? He's not even that good of a wrestler and he's done nothing but lose. But now he's won and and maybe he has the title. Maybe that's what it is, but he's starting to grow on me a little bit. The one thing I will say, it's a massive improvement in character over the last couple of months and we'll see if it continues. We'll see if I actually start to like LA Knight because I don't like him yet, but he is improving and, and credit where it's due because it is getting better. We had Johnny Gargano and Austin Theory hit the ring with Gargano explaining that NXT's change in management needs to be matched with a new champion. He said NXT is at its best when he's the champion, the NXT champion, and he outclasses Karrion Cross in every way as witnessed during the fatal five-way match. That brought out Pete Dunne, who said Gargano's claim was bullshit and the way basically walked away from a potential fight to abide by the rules that William Regal and Samoa Joe had set Unfortunately, Theory jumped up on the ring apron and his fingers got caught by Pete Dunne, who snapped them. The way later entered Regal's office in a respectful manner, replenished the broken pencil that Gargano broke a couple weeks ago and tried to get Samoa Joe to fight for them, but Regal instead made a tag team match later in the show. So we got Gargano and Theory against Dunne and Oni Lorcan. Theory got in a ton of impressive offense while selling his broken fingers that Dunne kept attacking during the match. This kid is legitimately impressive and he is going to be special. Future, future, future world championship material if he's able to put it all together. But Austin Theory has it. 
Gargano hit a slingshot spear on Lorcan and a tope suicida on Dunn. Then Theory hit his new seated springboard Spanish fly, which again is an insane move. There was a weird spot where Lorcan came in too early and broke up Dunn's submission. Gargano and Dunn had numerous great exchanges. Dunn and Lorcan then hit an assisted powerbomb neckbreaker for a near fall. Gargano took out Dunn with a tope suicida tornado DDT. Yes, all in one move. And immediately hit Lorcan with one final beat to get the win for the way. Gargano was celebrating up the ramp when Cross blindsided him out of nowhere with his still unnamed forearm to the back of the head finisher. Cross got some loud boos, and then he was later confronted by Samoa Joe. But before Joe could even speak backstage, Cross said, quote unquote, unless provoked, indicating he was within his right to attack Gargano. Joe let him pass and leave the CWC, but Scarlett stared him down. And then when Joe turned around, Pete Dunne stared him down for the second straight week which is pretty interesting considering we don't think Samoa Joe is in a wrestling role and he's not supposed to wrestle, but Pete Dunne is staring his ass down. Now, what was interesting about all of this is the way basically turned face based on crowd reaction during the match and then with Cross's attack after the match. Couple that with them purposely following the rules and it seems completely purposeful. Fans really love Johnny Gargano and they really got behind Austin Theory during this match. Gargano put on a randomly incredible TV performance kind of out of nowhere, though of course we know he's a great wrestler, but I just didn't expect that from this match. It was a match booking that would get mailed in if the equivalent thing happened on Raw, and we'd probably get some shit finish. But these guys just all go out and put on a four-star tag team match like it's absolutely nothing. It's a must-watch match, second only to Drew McIntyre and Riddle so far this week in terms of TV matches. It was really good booking to have Cross outsmart the new rules. And then the Joe and Dunn stare downs, those remain, remain incredibly interesting. My expectation is that they're going to set up a number one contendership between Gargano and Dunn. But we've talked about it. Cross has already beaten these guys. That was part of the problem with him winning the fatal five way. Anyway, with Cross's attack, I have to assume we're not going to get a number one contendership and we'll simply get Cross versus Gargano at the Great American Bash in two weeks. Maybe they'll do a number one contendership next week. I think they're just going to give Gargano the title match. We had another tag team match, Io Shirai and Zoe Stark against the Robert Stone brand. Stark said she respected Shirai, and Shirai said she respected but didn't like Stark in a backstage interview. Candice Lorraine and Indy Hartwell came out to watch the match. Shirai got the hot tag and hit the moon over moonsault for the win. After the match, the way distracted the faces, and then Raquel Gonzalez and Dakota Kai hopped on the other side of the ring to kind of corner them but they demanded a title shot first. Then Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart came out and said Gonzalez and Kai were at the back of the line because they'd already beat them. All six women other than the champions brawled. And then Samoa Joe came out with like 15 different officials and referees to separate everyone. Aaliyah and Jesse Kamia got a lot more offense than one would expect in this match. Everything after that was pretty standard, nothing to really write home about. But it was interesting because Moon cut her promo in a comedic manner, and it seemed to really make her more comfortable in front of a crowd. So maybe they found something there with her. As expected, uh, we're getting a number one contendership triple threat match next week with the winners going on to face the way at the Great American Bash for the tag team championships. Now, somewhat related to this, tangentially related, Frankie Monet fought Electra Lopez in a singles match. Monet was bragging backstage to Aaliyah and Jesse Camia before their match that all of them would win and they'd have good nights. And he, she suggested they be called the winner's circle. 
And then Robert Stone came out and Monet again acted like she wasn't there doing anything nefarious. But the idea of her stealing Stone's team is a pretty good one if they follow through with it. I actually was thinking about this. If I'm WWE, I take Robert Stone, I move him up to the main roster, and I have him be Carmella's manager. And then I take Frankie Monet. I have her, yes, grab Aaliyah and Jesse Kamia and have them form a female little group and see if they can do anything together. That's what I would do. I think that would be very smart booking across both shows. And it would move Robert Stone up because this guy, he's better than NXT. Like he doesn't need to be in NXT and nothing they've given him in NXT to this point has worked. The one thing that did work was Chelsea Green and they ended that before it even really got started. I think he can have a similar bit of success with Carmella over on SmackDown. Anyway, the match itself was a relative squash with Monet hitting the glam slam for the win. Lopez, by the way, is Carissa Rivera who had an NXT match once, like a couple of years ago, but you probably remember her better as Bobby Lashley's ex-wife on Raw during the segment with Lana and Miro, now, you know, former Rusev. Anyway, Monet was dominant again, and again, her entrance theme is an absolute banger. Bronson Reed backstage didn't understand why Santos Escobar wanted more of him considering how badly he squashed him recently. Hit Row interrupted that interview with Top Dollar and Swerve getting in his face as Ashanti the Adonis cut a quick promo about Everrise ahead of their match. So he had Everrise against Hit Row in a tag team match. Footage was shown of Everrise in ski masks trying to spray paint Top Dollar's SUV, but they were wearing Everrise shirts while they were doing it. I wish WWE aired more social media clips that get popular like NXT does, and that's what they did here. But I wish Raw and SmackDown did this far more often because you get some really good things like Kofi Kingston's promo, after Raw on Monday, that's never going to see the light of day other than social media. As far as the match, Hit Row dominated. They hit a combined powerbomb neckbreaker finisher for the win. Swerve then took out Matt Martell with the house call, just for good measure to add insult to injury. Hit Row also did something kind of unique. It was a minor touch, but when they tag in and out, they use the back of their hand, just like a casual type of tag rather than the high five. It's just kind of cool and a little bit different. I thought that was a really nice touch. Uh, Mercedes Martinez was told to find a partner because she's having a mixed tag team match next week with Zia Lee and Boa. Zia Lee then attacked her from behind and Jake Atlas made the save, effectively becoming her partner. I'm glad to see Boa uh, getting in the ring. That's nice. And we'll see what that's like. I also think it's pretty cool. And I don't know this for sure, but I think Mercedes Martinez and Jake Atlas may be the first ever LGBTQ plus the other ones, um, tag team in WWE history. I, I don't know that 100%, but I think so. So that's pretty cool uh, if that is the case. A couple more things before we get out of here with NXT. The charging battery animation that we saw last week went from 30% to 31%, then to 41%, and then to 51%. So I believe I called last week the timing of this all going down at Great American Bash. And we're certainly on pace for that. It should get to 81% next week. And then middle of the way through Great American Bash, it should hit 100%. Or maybe they do 101% and that's part of the gimmick because they keep using the ones. So I don't know what they're doing there. But we still think it's probably Tegan Knox or Ridge Holland returning from injury. But it could be someone completely new that we're not even thinking about 
the idea that it's a surprise and that we don't know, just like with Diamond Mine, it's a good thing to kind of get you watching each week and wondering what's going to happen. MSK, along with Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher, are now set for an NXT Tag Team Championship match in two weeks at Great American Bash with Cole and O'Reilly and the women's tag team match. This is already setting up to be an incredible card. And if we get Cross and Gargano there as well, that's going to be quite a TV special. And now just to wrap up here on NXT, something I noticed over the course of the show, it did seem likely that after he lost the NXT title to Karrion Cross, that Finn Balor would probably get called back up to the main roster and appear on Raw or SmackDown. But it almost feels certain to me now. Not only is he no longer mentioned on NXT, his image has been pulled from some of the WWE shop commercials that feature NXT talent and some promotional materials as well. So I'm in the mindset right now where I'm going to expect Finn Balor on the show sooner than later, whether it's Raw or SmackDown, I don't know. But my hope is that he debuts on that first Raw immediately after Money in the Bank, the first Raw with fans. Because not only would he get a huge pop, but Raw needs him a lot more right now than SmackDown does. So overall, another very successful NXT episode. I think we talked about last week's show being one of their best of the year. That was not the case this week, but it was very good start to finish. And as you can tell, based on my breakdown, there was really nothing in particular that I found bad or offensive on the show. I thought it was two really good hours of wrestling television. Combining that with three pretty damn good hours of Raw on Monday, WWE is off to a fantastic start this weekend. So if we finish up with SmackDown being really good on Friday, the show coming out of Hell in a Cell, and AEW with the Saturday night special, Kenny Omega and Jungle Boy, if they give us a couple really good hours as well, this could be the best week of wrestling television that we've had all year start to finish. And that would be awesome. But speaking of AEW, let's move on and talk about Dynamite from Friday. The show opened with Jake Hager against Wardlow in an MMA match. This was well done from a production and planning standpoint. We'll talk about the fight in a minute. It probably should have been the main event, but given the show started at 10 p.m., I totally understand why they put it on first. The octagon looked great also. There were no judges or pinfalls. Wardlow turned his back to Hager during his entrance as a means of disrespect, and Hager answered back with two takedowns right away, but he ate one takedown and a Superman punch off the cage in round one. Hager then got Wardlow in submission holds for most of round two, and then finally, like 1.5 rounds in, so in the middle of round two, they started actually doing some pro wrestling moves. Hager hit Wardlow with a Uranagi and then turned it into a chokehold for the win. Commentary sold that Wardlow didn't tap out, but he passed out, and I liked it. Even though it was in an octagon, there should have been a little bit more pro wrestling to it because there was really no good reason not to do it. And you saw when they started doing it in the middle of round two, it was a little bit like NXT's fight pit, which is something we obviously love. So I would have liked for there to be a little bit more wrestling. And the worst part about it was the fake MMA shit, throwing elbows and stuff that didn't come anywhere near close to landing because they weren't supposed to. Wrestling never gets fake MMA right. But this was decent, and it may have been one of the best examples of fake MMA wrestling in uh, fake MMA in wrestling is what I mean to say. And ultimately, what's most important is that I was entertained, and it was a really good opening segment to the show. Uh, they went to bump fist after the match, Wardlow and Hager, when Sean Spears, who was the corner man for Wardlow, attacked Hager from behind. Chris Jericho then came in; they all brawled. MJF ran in; he attacked Jericho's arm, making him tap. 
And then Dean Malenko ran in to pull him off. So MJF socked a 60-year-old man with Parkinson's disease, like he needs more heat or something like that. Uh, That was unnecessary. I didn't think we needed to see that. Sammy Guevara finally ran in and cleared house. And it's obvious that these factions are going to be feuding all summer with MJF Guevara seemingly next. But as AEW does so frequently, they booked a post-match that made you quickly forget about the match itself. I wish that match could have been allowed to stand on its own and just have you kind of come out of there and say, oh, that was pretty good and entertaining. And then maybe backstage they all brawl after the commercial break or something. I just hate that that they kind of shove all of that together. It's a car crash mentality that WCW had back in the day. It's something I didn't personally like. Uh, But there was a continuing talking inner circle and pinnacle. There was a fantastic video package juxtaposing FTR with Santana and Ortiz. It was actually the best individual thing on the entire show. It was quite well done. Unfortunately, there was no match announcement here, but I hope they do it for the first live travel show on July 7th, because this does set up to be an absolute banger. Santana and Ortiz must be the ones to go over when it does happen, and they absolutely need to be the team to take the tag team titles off of the Young Bucks when AEW does that Arthur Ashe Stadium show in Queens. The pop Santana and Ortiz would get winning the titles there would be astronomical. Darby Allen fought the men of the year in a handicap match. Apparently, Rick Knox sucks not only at refereeing normal tag team matches, but handicap matches as well. Although he was decent enough here because men of the year actually wanted to follow the rules. But there were many times where Darby got double teamed for long periods where it was unnecessary and really should have been against the rules. Darby predictably got his ass kicked for most of the match, but he zip tied Ethan Page's feet together with Knox distracted. He took advantage of Scorpio Sky immediately with an over-the-top stunner and a coffin drop, but Page was able to break the fall and found pliers to cut the zip cord, uh, zip tie, I'm sorry. Page dominated Darby afterwards and hit Ego's Edge for the eventual win. This went on a little bit too long given that Sky and Page should be able to compete with Darby individually, let alone as a team. But it was a good segment despite the match not necessarily being to my taste. I like the inventiveness of the zip tie. That was pretty cool. Orange Cassidy faced Cesar Bononi in a singles match. The wingmen messed with Orange outside and best friends basically didn't do anything about it until they helped him with a cheerleader throw to a cannonball in an awesome spot. Orange then hit Stun Dog Millionaire and a Tornado DDT plus three orange punches to different guys for the win. Bononi has had some personal struggles recently and I'm glad to see that things seem to be getting better for him and his family in that regard. But he's just not good in the ring. Like, we just got to be honest about it. He's not a good wrestler. The Wingmen are a decent comedy act, but it's really Peter Avalon selling the entire thing for them. As a group, it's a, it's a dark, a dark elevation type of group. It really shouldn't be on Dynamite, and Benoni should not be the one out of that group wrestling. Uh, Kenny Omega confronted Jungle Boy during an interview. Omega said Jungle Boy tried to embarrass him last week, so he upped the ante and challenged him to fight him in the loading dock. Jungle Boy declined, but then Omega gave him a free shot. As Jungle Boy prepared to punch him, Michael Nakazawa hit him with a laptop and they all brawled. I thought they were going to make the title match a street fight based on all of this, which would have been really cool. Instead, it was kind of all for nothing and just a bit dorky, if we're being honest. I'm okay with Omega being a chicken shit heel, and I'm okay with chicken shit heel champions in general, but I also feel like Omega's better than that. And I wish he had been the one to get shots in on Jungle Boy rather than to just 
right off on the golf cart, scared, allowing Nakazawa to take the beating. Team Taz minus Brian Cage had a meeting backstage. Taz told Ricky Starks that his shit with Brian Cage needs to end. Powerhouse Hobbs said he got left hanging last week and he was angry about it. Taz then challenged Hangman Page to fight Hobbs one-on-one. Hangman later accepted that challenge and praised all the Dark Order members individually, raising a glass to Evil Uno's effort last week against Miro. He ignored a question purposely about challenging for the world title, presumably mentally blocking out Omega from his mind. And I loved that. Page is great at the little things. I don't really have a take on this otherwise, but Page versus Hobbs next week should be an absolute banger. So I'm looking forward to it. When I say next week, obviously, I mean this week. Uh, Cody Rhodes and Brock Anderson fought QT Marshall and Aaron Solo. The referee missed a Cody Tagging, but he eventually entered and hit a Canadian Destroyer on Marshall. Anderson then flipped over Solo for the pinning combination victory. Arn hugged his son after the match. I get people enjoying this for nostalgia purposes, but this extended feud, it's really not hitting for me. And Brock making his debut, it didn't really hit for me either. I just personally didn't care. He, But I will give him credit. He didn't look out of place, which is a great thing for his first match. And he, the resemblance with his father is uncanny. I just hope they don't saddle him with that. Just like Dustin Rhodes and just like Cody Rhodes didn't want to be saddled with only being Dusty's son for their entire career. So I hope you know, they figure out a way to separate Brock a little bit. But I did, I find found him pretty entertaining and pretty good. And I definitely think he has a future. So good for him. Lance Archer paced in the background like a maniac as Jake the Snake Roberts cut a promo about Archer wanting and waiting to attack and pounce like a lion. There was also a situation where Matt Hardy locked Christian in a cage, pun probably intended there, and told him he should have stayed retired. Both were short backstage segments, relatively unspectacular. Andrade El Idolo did a interview with Jim Ross. Andrade looked like a million bucks and he acted super cool. He spoke English, but it was subtitled because it was a little bit choppy and difficult. Eventually he spoke in Spanish and I thought that was far better. If I'm them, I just have him do his promos in Spanish. I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, He said he's working with Vicky Guerrero because of her experience with luchadors and they have a surprise in store for people. Now, my guess off the top is that they're going to give Andrade some Los Ingobernables type of faction perhaps even with Rush and Dragon Lee. And there's a bunch of, we can get into 10 minutes on why that would make sense. I don't know that it's going to happen, but I think that's the way I'm leaning. A lot of people are leaning towards, oh, it's just going to be Zelina Vega and maybe Aleister Black, Tommy End, and they'll form some type of trio. I could see that happening too, but I just don't think it's directly going in that direction. And if I'm AEW and I bring in Tommy End, I want him to be super, super unique, not tied to Andrade in any way. So I'm going with some type of Los Ingobernables type of deal. But overall, this was a win. It certainly didn't detract from those who said that Andrade wouldn't get over in WWE because of his ability to speak. That should not be an issue in WWE, but it is. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and note that it's more difficult for Andrade to get over in WWE than it would be someone like Santos Escobar. And I think that's why Escobar may down the line have more success than Andrade did. But again, that's no excuse because you have Andrade, a man of his talent. You had him with Zelina Vega. There was no reason to split them up, obviously, until they fired her. They could have found another manager for Andrade if necessary. He should have worked in WWE and he should have been someone who is in the main event picture or at least 
constantly an upper mid-carder. If I'm AEW, like I said, I let him speak in Spanish with subtitles whenever possible. I don't love Vicky Guerrero being his manager. Maybe I find someone else or I just allow him to operate on his own. Uh, Penelope Ford fought Julia Hart, typical late spot on the show. The match technically got more than seven minutes, but most of it was during the commercial break. Ford did an awesome submission where she wrenched Hart backwards by the neck while bent over in a leg lock. The Varsity Blondes pulled Ford off Hart and Miro came out to have her back, even though he had to teach Kip Sabian a lesson a couple weeks ago. Miro ended up brawling with Brian Pillman Jr. and AEW cut away from it for absolutely no reason, just to go to a backstage interview. I was just like getting into it when that happened, so that was weird. Uh, They make those weird production calls all the time. Let things marinate, let things sit. When someone wins a match, keep the camera on them for 15 seconds. I don't know why they cut away so much, but we are getting Miro versus Pillman next week for the TNT title. Not this Saturday, the following week. Uh, Britt Baker was about to be interviewed when Vicky interrupted and said she wants the title around Nyla Rose's waist. She demanded a title match and said Tony Khan owes her a favor for bringing Andrade to AEW. So rather than cashing in that favor as a title match for Nyla, which is what would make sense, she cashed in the favor to make a tag team match between Baker and Rebel against herself and Nyla next week. So that doesn't make a shred of sense. And I don't understand why Baker is being booked on the face side, I suppose, of a feud when she's a newly crowned heel champion. This was just completely nonsensical for those reasons. Jade Cargill and Mark Sterling talked about her new sponsorship and monetization opportunities. Man, I'll tell you guys, I really like Jade. I can't stress enough how much I like her and how big of a future I think she has. But her booking is shit. Her slogan sucks. And Sterling was a huge letdown after such a long buildup to a manager. Just let her kick some ass in the ring and do a bunch of vignettes of her bawling out on yachts and in clubs and just make her look super cool. I don't need stand-up promos backstage with her and Mark Sterling every week. It just doesn't do anything to enhance her character. And then the main event, Matt Jackson and the Good Brothers against Frankie Kazarian, Eddie Kingston, and Penta El Zero M. The Faces cut a promo early with Kazarian shockingly standing out over Kingston. This was another Rick Knox classic, absolute chaos and endless cheating. Penta hit a tope con hero and a fear factor with Kazarian hitting Angel's Wings for a near fall. There are a ton of more signature moves hit. Penta came back with a backstabber and was going high risk when Nick Jackson ran in with the cold spray, allowing Carl Anderson to drill him with an avalanche neckbreaker for the win. I know certain people will put this over as a great match, but as I always say, I appreciate the wrestling skill for being exceptional, but I find these matches to be excruciating as a viewer. The right team definitely won, considering the faces weren't a cohesive unit, and the heel booking, of course, makes total sense. Now, breaking down AEW Dynamite as a whole, top to bottom, I felt it was a bit rough for a show. It probably was the best of their Friday night shows, so let's give them credit for that. And a number of elements on the show really got you excited for what's ahead this coming Saturday and the following week. The biggest miss was not having a bigger go-home build for Omega versus Jungle Boy, given that that's this Saturday on Dynamite. And I wanted a lot more buildup than just that weird thing in the loading dock. And not only is the show off of Wednesday, but it's on a different day and time than what they've been doing recently on Fridays. So you had every reason to be heavily promoting the show 
And Omega Jungle Boy is the biggest reason to do that. And outside of that one segment, and I think one match promotion graphic later in the show, that's all we really got. So I felt AEW just really fell flat in a lot of ways on Friday, but they've gotten through this three Friday stretch. Hopefully that's over. I expect Saturday's show to be really good. And when they're back on Wednesday, my hope is they start giving full faith and effort again. It just doesn't feel like they've really been doing that recently. And I hope that they kind of turn things around coming out of that. So that's really it for today's show, talking NXT and AEW. We'll keep this one short because really there's we've done a lot of wrestling for you this week, wrestling podcasting for you this week, not only giving you the instant analysis from WWE Hell in a Cell, which you need to go back and listen to if you have not yet, but a full WWE show as well, breaking down the early and almost half complete build for Money in the Bank, along with everything else that happened on Raw and SmackDown. Those are both on our show pages uh, and our archives. So please, no matter where you listen to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, wherever, just go to the last couple of shows and be sure to catch up if you have not listened to those already. Also, as is tradition, I leave you with a couple reminders to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and to be marks for this show. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. While keeping it all about the five. It's all about the five. And dropping a five-star rating and review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Let people know how much you love the show. Give them reasons to subscribe and listen as well. And do not forget to tell your friends and family. So I am not yet sure, just to wrap up, whether I will be doing that show on Sunday immediately after AEW Dynamite. But as of right now, having done so many podcasts already this week, the thought right now is we will talk AEW Dynamite from Saturday along with next week's NXT on Wednesday. And we will, of course, be back on Tuesday with our WWE episode, breaking down everything from SmackDown and next Monday's Raw. So with that, I will bid you adieu, and the Silver King will leave you with three final words. Bye for now.